We had a great time yesterday at the retreat here, and a lot of it was about turning inward and focusing and centering down. And so let's do that just for a moment. Silently where you are, just kind of go to God and work out where you've been to where you need to be right now. Jesus, as I enter into this sacred space, each Sunday I'm reminded of those who through the years have sacrificially given of their dollars, of their time, of their efforts to make this beautiful place reality. And that we get to share what they have prepared for us today in a in a time in which we can take part of a, a Lord's Day, uh, just an hour we have here of this whole day, to focus a little bit more on who you are, which really is theology, the study of you, the study of God. And as we study you, we pray that we might know a little bit more about who we are to be, how you've created us in your image, and how you create leaders and develop leadership qualities in each one of us and Lord we pray that you would come just now and have your way each of us has a different need each of us has a different journey each of us are in a different place in our life and yet you miraculously each week through these kinds of Christian education hours and through the worship experience and a preaching and teaching of the word that you, you meet all of these things, and I'm not sure quite how, how you do that. As much, Lord, as we learn about how to educate and how we can help bring inspiration and motivation to people, I, I'm amazed that you go so far beyond us. And so, Lord, I'm, I already know, and I, and I need to trust that you will be the real teacher here and that you will come and you will take each one of us right where we are and that there will be one thing at least today for each one of us to come out of where we are and come into where we are out of your word. And Lord, as we always pray here, that we know that you inspired your word in its writing and now we pray again that you would inspire it as we study it, meditate upon it, contemplate it, and most of all, apply it to our lives. So we pray, Lord, that you would bind up the enemy that would come to steal us away from us. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would have your way with us. As always, Heavenly Father, we pray this all for the expansion and enhancement of your kingdom through the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of your Holy Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Well, we're coming to our last time uh, as we're in this time and series of talking about our leadership from a perspective of, of Barnabas and, and somewhat of Paul and John Mark and others. And I, and I think if you've just joined us or if you're joining us by the, the audio that you might be listening, that one of the things that I have tried to make a point of is how much 
Barnabas really has been the person that has been the most maybe overlooked person in the New Testament and what he was able to do to help bring about such rich mentorship to the leadership of the church. And when you see particularly how much of the New Testament was based around Paul, Luke wrote Paul's gospel. Luke also wrote the Acts of the Apostles of which the the latter half at least was dedicated to Paul. And Luke had all of that influence for Paul. And then Paul wrote much of the epistles. And when you understand it's really God writing all of that, but inspiring each of those men to write, I think it's right, and I'm not trying to take away the, the, the aspect that Paul was an absolutely chosen figure of God. But what we see in the narrative is we see how much Paul even changed. And today, we're going to see as they as they've are out on that first missionary journey together, and, and by the way, I've, I've I called a mind we're going to come across the second person today by the name of Silas and most of us when we just have a cursory thinking we confuse Barnabas and Silas we think oftentimes they're the same person and they're really not Barnabas was the one that got Paul started and went on that first missionary journey and then in the narrative today we're going to find that Silas comes along and becomes the next person with Paul and so in all of this, we're trying to make the case that what, where Paul was and where Barnabas picked Paul up and then walked him down the road, and when they ended up going separate ways and Barnabas took John Mark as his new Paul and Paul took Silas to do with him what Barnabas had done with him, the Gospels expanded because we now have two missionary teams But we're going to see some of this, there's some principles at work in terms of leadership that I think are very, very important. And looking at who we attract here, we are talking about that most of us are in the phase now of having some age discrimination against us. Because we are at that end of the spectrum, and we're going to see that with Barnabas that there's an age discrimination, if we can put it into modern parlance, that he is very much, when are you going to retire, old man? And we're going to see this kind of thing taking place, and yet, when Paul gets to that age of when he left Barnabas' tutelage, he has become Barnabas. Paul is not liked by a lot of people, particularly a lot of secular people, particularly feminist, particularly people who don't like thus saith the Lord a lot, and getting in your face a lot. They don't like that brand of Christianity, and I don't, I'm not sure that I do. But that's who Paul was until the Holy Spirit, through the tutelage of Barnabas, had its full work, and we see this coming back to the end. And Paul is a much different person in his latter years than he was earlier.
After all, who was it that wrote that chapter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that is read at almost every marriage ceremony, wedding ceremony? That love chapter. But that was Paul. It wasn't Barnabas. But you can see Barnabas's influences through that. May it be said of all of us that we are a little bit different after having walked with Jesus and our mentors. Hopefully we're better. And even though the young ones want us to get out of the way, hopefully we will handle things the way that Barnabas did. So let's just jump in and I'm going to try to rush through a few things because of our time and where we are. But we're going to start out in chapter 14 and you begin to see now that, that Paul and Barnabas are moving out and we're at this place now where Barnabas in the first places and Cyprus and other places he was leading and then Paul steps to the forefront and we talked about how how Paul got in some people's faces and and we can just see Barnabas saying oh Paul come here we got to talk about this can we tone it down a little bit can we can we can we be a little bit more sensitive a little bit more loving and remember that we talked about two weeks ago and have emphasized each week that the narrative that we're reading always has to be translated through and, and, and interpreted through the didactic. We're reading narratives. It's a story. It's historical. And so we should not always do just what these people did, but we should learn from what they did, some of it good, some of it not so good, through the didactic. Other parts of the Scripture it says, this is what you should do. Those are the teaching parts. Thus saith the Lord, the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, kinds of things. So, not everything here is exactly what we should do, but let's learn from it. And it says that at Iconian, they enter together into the Jewish synagogue. And right there we get a sense that now we've moved from Barnabas saying, I'm going to model it for you, to now I'm going to mentor it. We're going to do it together. And they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed, verse 2 of chapter 14. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Darby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now you can begin to see some of these cities up on the map that they went to on the northern side of the map. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled down from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright and on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. 
But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words they scarcely restrained a people from offering sacrifices to them. Okay, now let's jump back up, up into about verse 11 and 12, 13. What is going on there? Anybody want to hazard a guess of what's going on there? They gave, they thought they were gods. They called them two of their Greek gods, which were, which were what? What do we know about those two gods? Zeus and Hermes. Anybody? What's that? Hermes was the messenger god that we learned about a couple weeks ago. And so who was giving the messages? Paul was giving the messages, right? We get a sense that Paul, all the way through this, is a much more skilled orator than Barnabas is. And so his skills put him up front much more. And Barnabas is willing to allow that to happen, which is a key component of a strong leader, that a leader is very comfortable in their own, own skin about who they are, they don't have to be up front all the time. They can be in the background. They don't have to have all the, the publicity. But because Zeus was the head god, and Zeus was physiologically huge, and Barnabas was a big guy. Paul was a tiny guy, and Hermes was a small guy, was a small god. And so they identified these two as these gods. And this is what they sensed. They sensed in their roles, they sensed in their phys physique, who they were. Yeah. That's a great question, and, it, and you have to understand that the people there that were coming out and doing this were either Jews that were not faithful to the Judaism, or they were Gentiles. They were primarily Gentiles. Now, you have to understand that this, these Jews that are up in this area are what are called the Jews of the Diaspora. And the Jews of the Diaspora are spread this is when they were taken militarily to other, you know, kidnapped and put in this city and that city. And, and these Jews in these cities were often like your kids or grandkids when they go off to college. They don't exactly make the bed like mom told them to it at home. I, that may come as a surprise and shock to you, but they just don't do that in those college dorms. Having been on the college campus for many, many years, the kids just kind of act a little differently once they leave your house. I know it's hard to believe, but that's really what happens, and that's how these Jews were. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have the priesthood, so they're kind of out there, and so they might get kind of lost in their ways. By the way, 
over 50% of kids that grow up in churches like this when they go to secular universities lose their faith. Over 70% of Catholic students raised in Catholic homes and churches lose their faith when they go to Catholic universities. There's something wrong with what happens when we have our kids going to, to our universities today. It's not the same university. There's a lot to be said for community schools that are still within the religious ethos that are helping kids find their way in that vulnerable time. It's a very, very difficult stat. But this is what's happening to those Jews, that they're out there, and they're, quite, they're not quite. So that's some of the reasons why. But now here's a legend that happened. Um, it's not a legend. How am I trying to say, how can I communicate this? That culture of that day, these people that came out had a legend. And the legend was, was that the gods came down to that particular city of Lystra, and the people did not welcome them in. There was only this one kind of poor couple that welcomed the gods into their house. And as a result of that, the city was destroyed and ran into all kinds of trouble. So, they said, this will never happen again. And that's why they came out with all of the fatted calf kind of stuff, and we're going we're gonna to make sure the next time that the gods show up, we're going to treat them right. Now, why didn't Paul and Barnabas, why didn't they stop that as soon as they came out and started, okay, he's just healed the guy. Verse 11, the crowd saw what they had done, and they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down in the likeness of men. Why didn't they stop right away? That, that very well could be, particularly from Barnabas's perspective. I'm not sure that Paul ever cared about that much at this point. I think, I think you're both going in very good directions. But they, get this, they spoke in Lyconian. They didn't know the language. They didn't really know what was going on. And that's why it kind of develops, and, and all of a sudden, you know, the priest comes out, and, and this stuff starts to happen. And then finally, when they realize that they're going to sacrifice to them. And somebody, somebody comes up to them and said, do you know what they're doing? Because it says when they heard it, when they heard of it, they're getting ready. They think you're gods. And that's when they started tearing their clothes and, and all that. So you get this sense that we, when we go into this mission work, we really do need to understand the culture of which we go into. I think uh, Terry will rem remember, and some others, uh, uh, a missionary by the name of Bob Hess. And Bob was a missionary to, to India. And he had all these people coming to hear about Christ, and he went over to touch the shoulder of one guy, and, and he was ministering to him. And then he went over 
to their side and started to reach out to touch, and the whole room ran away. And he couldn't figure out what was happening. And what was happening was he had touched somebody from a lower caste and then was going to go touch somebody from a higher caste, and they were not going to stick around to hear about any caste at all. And sometimes we make these mistakes because we don't know culture. And so the sensitivity is part of it. We've got to to approach it from that perspective. All right, so you see what's happening, and you can begin to see that now they're having some problems. They've been chased out, and now 19, it says, verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and this is, this is the Antioch up, up here in, in uh, Asia Minor, not in Syria. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Darby. I mean, talk about a, a, a miraculous healing of that. And Rich, I'm getting a lot of feedback. I don't know if there is, is anybody else, there's an echo of any kind? Okay. So here's like this miraculous, they, they, they stoned him so much they thought he was dead and now all of a sudden he gets up and walks all the way back. When they had preached the gospel, verse 21, to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, and strengthening the souls of the disciples. Now this is the very places that had been throwing them out. Think about the boldness. Think about what it would take for you and I to go back to a place that had treated us so, so poorly and our lives are at risk. I mean, these were not weak people. When they had reached, when they preached the gospel, verse 21, to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, like they had just experienced. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch. This is now the Antioch of Syria, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that, that, had, that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered, the church together they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and there remained no little time with the disciples so if you look at your notes and you, and, and you come upon Barnabas protege steps out and we were there last week we talked about the, the three part sermon about studying the scripture declaring the doctrine and making the applications of sermons then we see that he begins to move out, out from there, and we pick that up today. And Lystra, we find out on the next missionary trip, is the home of Timothy, who was born of a Greek father and a Jewish woman. And so therefore, because they were speaking Lyconian, not Greek or Latin, um, this gives us an indication that they were independent of both the Greek and also the Roman governments, but they did worship Greek gods. 
Now notice in Leicester that there's no synagogue. This would be in verse 8 and following. Uh, they, they didn't go to the synagogue. They didn't go there probably because at this point Barnabas and Paul were trying to avoid the persecution and interference. Now notice the, the highlighted note there. When preaching to Jews, the sermon starts with Abraham, the nation of Israel, etc. But when they start preaching to Gentiles, it starts with creation which is a fundamental message of redemption. But notice that wherever we start, we must always end with Christ. And people say, well, how can I preach Christ from the whole Bible? The Old Testament gives us the history and the prophecies, the predictions about Christ. And everything in the Old Testament teaches us about Christ and his coming. The Gospels tell us about Christ on earth. Acts tells us about how Christ was preached and how the mission of Christ went out. The epistles tell us how we're supposed to live like Christ and do the work of Christ. And the revelation tells us the final consummation of Christ's kingdom and how Christ will be worshipped. And the, the central theme throughout the Bible is Christ. And any good teaching and preaching of the gospel, no matter what passage in either the Old or New Testament, always points to Christ. And Paul and Barnabas show us this very way of going about it. And when we see that we try to be sensitive and bring people from where they are to where they need to go, they did that. Starting with Jews, you understood the Jewish history, you know the the Jewish fathers, and we're going to help you understand the gospel through that. Gentiles, you know nature. You know these these gods that you're worshiping, remember what Paul does now a few chapters later in 17, you, you have here an, uh, an idol in Athens to the unknown God. Let me tell you about the God you don't know. He is Jesus. Wish we had time to go through there. That's a powerful, powerful chapter. But you get a sense that, we, we're starting to get a sense a little bit of, of this particular way that they are doing their mission work. Uh, some of the other notes you can read uh, when you have time. But when we come to the end of that section where it says, under Antioch of Syria, there's a couple things there that I want to point out. That they gave this report about the open door that they had. And isn't this, this is, this is the model when we bring missionaries back Don't we love to hear the stories of how God is at work in their lives and what they've been doing? The powerful stories. These are are what we need to do. We need, not only, remember the first few weeks, we need to send missionaries out. And I'm encouraging everybody here, maybe God is saying, you need to become a missionary. And maybe you need to, for a couple weeks, be a short-term missionary. And Greg, you can even do it through golf. You can go and be a missionary to the golf world. And, and you know what? Go do it. But go be a missionary. If you don't know, he's been very, very influential in First Tee. And, and in some ways, that is a mission in and of itself. And I know your heart for that. And, and we, can, we can go on these mission trips, but then we need to come back and share. And didn't we do that with, with the Out West? We come back and tell those stories 
about what happened on the reservation, and people get encouraged by that. This is the model that we see them going on. The, the question's there at the end of that, do we still look to send out missionaries? I'm going to keep hammering this. Christ Church needs to, to send more Bill Yoders. We need to support more Esther Wakeman Collins. This is what we need to be about. But are we conscious of the dangers we send them into? I told a story yesterday at the retreat here that one of the most poignant moments in my life was when I was in Egypt working with the church who was part of our Presbyterian denomination. Almost 10,000 people in downtown Egypt, downtown Cairo, Egypt. And I had the opportunity to train about 70 plus 20-somethings. These are people in their 20s. And they've planted over 200 churches in the Middle East. And I sat there and I was, I was, I had the opportunity with a few others to train them about how to go in to those worlds. And when I looked into their eyes, I saw a passion for Jesus that I rarely have seen. And I also realized that what I was sending them into could well cost them their lives. And I I just said, Lord, how can I do this? I'm sending somebody's child or grandchild into a place that they may never return from. Pray for Bassam and Misho and Candace and, and those many 70 that are still doing this. They're still over there in the midst of everything that's going on. But then also, do we, re, do we provide for them healing, restorative furloughs? You know, when our missionaries come back, and they sometimes bring their teams, there's people here at the church that say, would you open up your home to these people? I want to encourage you to do that. You will be blessed by bringing these international people into your home. God has blessed many of you with homes that you could host them, and they would think that they're at the Ritz-Carlton in what they're used to. And when I have seen the privilege of, of people like yourselves opening up your homes and providing that kind of hospitality, Randy and Jim, you know, we think about Lakeside and, and we, we have places up there, and I know you guys do this, that you, would, you help people come and, and find rest. This is some, all of us cannot be missionaries, but we can help those that are out there on the front lines, can we not? How powerful could this be? A couple lessons from there. Let me just stop there. Questions that you have about chapter 14? Go ahead, Terry. Maybe we need to get the microphone if she's, yeah. And so Terry says she doesn't have a question. It's not a question. But, but just a follow-up to what you're talking about. Follow-up that she wants to give us. <laughs> these, these, these people that have been, there's actually people that are trying to fall asleep at home and they're listening to these I'm sorry. On, on the audio. So. so to give a follow-up to what Greg is talking about, Egypt, last May, actually May of 2013, 
things have changed there. And for the first time in our history, the Presbyterian history of partnering with the church in Egypt, God has opened a door to us that we don't know how long it's going to be open, but the government is saying, we need you mainline Protestants, Presbyterians, to start building churches because they're not allowed to gather in house churches. They have to have a building. Mm -hmm. And in order for, and the reason they're asking us this is because they're very worried about ISIS and the Brotherhood of Muslims. They are so violent, they're asking Presbyterians to, to construct churches, to train pastors, and to send them. And so we at the Presbyterian Mission Agency are putting together opportunities for people to help fund the construction of churches there. And we don't know how long the window will be, but the government has actually come to us to say, please help us fight the Brotherhood. Now, I'm going to tell you that, I, I'm, again, this I mentioned yesterday, the pastor of this church and his wife were both medical people. They were surgeons. They had very lucrative careers, and they felt led to, to change careers and take this church that has grown to 10,000. What's that? Okay. And, and what's happening now is so phenomenal there that you just would not believe what's going on. And I would, I would fully hope that Christ Church could actually form an official partnership with that, that sister church over there to see what we could do to be of help. Uh, it, it is an amazing, an amazing situation. Let me tell you an interesting story about building the church. If you go to downtown Cairo, it is right downtown. And if you've ever been there, there's a circular drive kind of that they want everybody to come to to see the magnificence of their city. And at one point, there was a, a man who worked in the mayor's office of downtown Cairo from this church. And you have to get the permit signed by the mayor in order to build your building. And the, the buildings that you're talking about. And so one day the mayor looks out and sees this building being built and then sees the steeple going up and it can be seen from that circle in this Muslim culture. And it's a Christian church that is very prominent. And he, he says, how did they get that permit? Well, this guy kind of slipped it in one night when he was a little intoxicated and just not taking very much, and he strategically, so, couldn't be undone. You know, you can't do that. You can't go back and undo it. So what the mayor said, I commissioned another building to be built in front of it to cover it up. And if you, in fact, I, I should probably show you a picture. I've got a picture of it. It's, it's very interesting, but it is happening. Let's get behind us. Let's do what we need to do to, to join that church. And, and they're doing just wonderful things. On your next note sheet there, the blank, the mission methodology churches, missionaries are to go out and they are to plant churches. They're not to start mission agencies or paraministries. Missionaries are to go out and plant churches. That's what they're supposed to do. And I think sometimes we get that lost in, in all of what we do. And wherever Barnabas and Paul went, they left the church. They didn't leave a paraministry. 
They didn't leave a mission agency. You see how we just read that they put up elders. They formed a church. And this is what we need to be understanding. And they, when we look at Acts chapter 14, 21, and following, we see that the foundation was built upon a threefold methodology, apostolic instruction, verses 21 and 22. Apostolic instruction. 23, pastoral oversight. And the third thing in, 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 in verse 23 is absolutely all under God's guidance, protection, and blessing. So, the expansion of the gospel is based upon establishing local churches through God's leading and direction, through his word, the apostolic teaching, Holy Scripture, and the shepherding of pastors. So, thoughts about that? or Go ahead, Jerry. Okay, so you understood my story. I understood your story about uh, in the Middle East, and you, I noticed you took young people. Young people have energy. They can play ball with them, teach them all kinds of games and so forth. And we found this out in our ministry in uh, at Pine Ridge. Uh, guys like Ed and I could do some physical things uh, 10 years ago. We can't anymore. I mean, I, can you see me up on a roof now? You watch me walk across the parking lot? Uh, but I could at the start. We've got to get some young guys to replace Ed and I. Uh, and I so you need to talk to the younger people. <laughs> well put, and, and I understand, but I'm going to tell you that it, it's, we need to be multi-generational in what we do. Because there's only things that you can do because of who you are and your experience. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine that you would tell them how to do it. I, 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 yeah. No, I think your point's well taken, and we it, it's got to be multi generational. Um, I think that was really some of the plan that. that we wanted to, and there were young people that went on the last West Coast trip, right? Or not West Coast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got families and all of that, and that, and it's a great way to have families, grandparents, parents, kids to go together. But there were two times there where we had just old Romans couldn't do anything. Yeah. Yeah, Jim.
I think what we're talking about is a methodology. And I, th and I believe that you're right about the Presbyterians leading the way in those areas of founding uh, hospitals and, and maybe even some orphanages and other kinds of things that were, that were meeting social needs. I, I work for a paraministry, okay? And so I, I appreciate what you're saying, Greg. Clarify this and... and because do I need to resign tomorrow because we just shouldn't have a paraministry? No, but the paraministry that I work for, its entire vision and reason for existence is to equip local churches to be able to do what they need to do. So the, the end goal is that there are churches that are established, even in the establishment of hospitals or orphanages or whatever else, the goal of that eventually is to be able to relate to people in such a way, meeting their physical needs, so that they will come and be part of a church. Because if we just heal their body, we help them for a few years, but we don't help them for eternity. And we don't transform their culture and their life. So the end goal, I still will say, Jim, is to plant churches. How we do that, the methodology... I'm all for that. And might I also say that if you read the book that was written by the editors of um, the British magazine, The Economist, who one is a self-proclaimed atheist and the other is a self-proclaimed non-practicing Catholic, they had no dog in this hunt. They said that they challenge anybody to show where these other religions, particularly Islam, has done anything close to this. They say, we can't find the Islamic hospital that has been built, or orphanage, or any of these things. It's only the Christians. These are people that aren't necessarily faithful Christian people. And they were saying in this book, it's called God is Back, not Black. He may also be black, but in the book, it's God is Back. They're stating that Christians have led the way, and you've got that right in one. Um, well, here's why I think in reading this that their model was that they did go and they did these things. It's, it talks about how they did healings, hospitals. They did these kinds of social things. The end was a church that they did establish, op apostolic leadership and these pastors that are coming in. So I do think, Jim, that it all ends up there. Um, but how do we get there? We can't do it without meeting those needs. If you come back in the last three weeks of March when we do our series, I'll be doing a series here on Celtic spirituality, we're going to see how the Celtic evangelists took this very model and began to grow a church in the most barbaric culture that may have ever existed. And, and so I do think that at some point 
We've got to get to that church or they won't grow. That's, that's my perspective. We've got one here and then one here, I think. Jim, most of the hospitals that the Presbyterians established were established through the churches that were already built there. So if you look at Congo, for instance, the church in Congo, the Presbyterian church that was founded by Presbyterian missionaries, then founded Good Shepherd Hospital. So the hospitals and schools came out of the founding of the churches. And now our partnerships and our missionaries that we send are sent to help build up the global church that was founded by the missionaries 200 years ago. So we work in partnership with the churches that are there and with the hospitals. And actually, the medical mission work that we're doing now is training other doctors. We don't necessarily now come to do the hands-on healing. We come to be trainers and to work with the church and to help lead the hospitals. You got one behind you here. Uh, when I, I trained for... I trained for six years in the Army and three years payback time. And so when I came to Canton and joined Jim King, I had to work in a, a Catholic hospital there. And, you know, we had never heard prayers in the morning in the middle. And when they were stopped, I'd be in the middle of a procedure and I'd have to stop and wait because the prayer came on up there and all the help would quit. They're going to listen. And so I don't know what a deal this is. And so after a couple of years, after watching how important that was to those people and the patients, the Catholic patients were there, it changed my mind. I liked to see it and hear it, and I didn't mind stopping. The, the next thing I want to say is you, you, you were switched. You said something about you can't just fix the mind and, and the essentially that you got to fix the body too that i want to emphasize that unless you have a full belly or at least reasonably full you're not going to listen to anybody that's exactly right and that's what missions have found they've got to meet the physical right away needs and before they can ever get to the spiritual needs and that's why we found ourselves doing so much of this in mission work but well, we've got a lot to cover here in a few minutes what I'd like to do is I want to I jump through, and I'm, I want to I give you a couple of uh, verses here that will help you understand uh, some of this. They come to Jerusalem, they start to tell these things in chapter 15, and in verse 2 it says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with these people, and it has to do with the circumcision, it has to do with can you become a Christian without becoming a Jew? And you can't become a Jew if you're a male without circumcision. So, how do you become a Christian? And this was the, really the debate. And this is some of the debate that, again, we'll pick up in that Celtic spirituality in three, the last three weeks of March, because there was that whole debate between the Roman church and the Celtic church about how do you actually become a Christian? And this is what they're, they're trying to figure out and so now they're appointed, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so part of what happens now, uh, verse 6, they were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you 
that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now does that come as a surprise to you? Now I want you to keep your finger there and I want you to go to the right in your Bible past Romans and Corinthians and come to Galatians. All right. And in the second chapter of Galatians, I believe it is. Uh, let's see here. Paul is describing some of his historical journey. And in verse 7 of chapter 2, he says, On the contrary, when they saw that I, Paul, had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he, he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. What, what, what do you think's happening between the, the description in Acts and the description that Paul's giving in Galatians? Okay, so Peter, when he talks about in chapter 15 of Acts that God chose him to be the mouthpiece to the Gentiles, he's referring back to that, what we read a few weeks ago, I believe it's chapter 10 of Acts, where he has this dream, and the, the Gentile says, come to my house, and the dream is, nothing is unclean, and Peter goes, and the guy becomes a Christian, and so Peter is claiming that he is to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And now Paul is saying, uh-uh, that was me. Peter was to those who were already circumcised, the Jews. There's some competition going on here, isn't there? These two guys, there is some leadership squabbles going on. That never happens in our churches. It's happened in every church almost since this time. And there are so many leadership principles here that we need to comprehend. And I'll just tell you that the, basically the way they settled this, without going all the way through scriptures to point it out to you, is that they basically declared turf. And Paul said, I'm going to Greece. And Peter stayed in Jerusalem. But at one point then, Peter said, no, this was, I need to go. And he ends up in Rome. And, and Peter does go out. And this is something that we need to understand, that when we have strong leaders, they are going to bump heads. If we read down through a little further in chapter 15 of Acts, after, he's, after he says this, verse 12, right after, right after Peter claims that he's the guy, all the assembly fell silent. Because I think there's a sense here that they knew that that maybe wasn't really true. Or that Peter didn't really act on it. And he had stayed in Jerusalem. 
And when somebody gets up and says those statements, you don't quite know how do we respond to that? What, what do we do when there's this leadership conflict in our church? What do we do? Most of us as lay people, yeah, we, we go to another church. <laughs> but we as lay people, we, we're, we're like, how do, how, do we do with, how do we deal with this? These are supposed to be our leaders, and they're squabbling. And I think that's where they're silent. But then they listen. Now, remember, the first name is always the one that's prominent. Now, up to this point, it started out Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, and then it went together, and then it went Paul to Barnabas, Paul, Barnabas, Paul, Barnabas. But now it comes back to Barnabas and Paul. And in the midst of this, what could be an ugly confrontation, remember what his name was from our first week, the son of encouragement, they all kind of look to him. Isn't it interesting? They don't look to Peter. They don't look to John, the disciple. They don't look to Jesus, the ha- uh, to James, the half-brother of Jesus. Barnabas is the one to get up. And I can see this very large man standing up and say, brothers, brothers, brothers. They were only brothers at this point. We must reason together. And he relates then the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now notice what he's doing there. He's actually taking a side for Paul. And he's mentoring Paul and he's saying Paul really is the guy. And in that one simple verse we see what Barnabas does as the mentor to say, Paul is this guy. And after they finished speaking, James replied, now James has the platform. This is the half-brother of Jesus, not the disciple. The disciple, the half uh, that, that, was the, that was the brother of John, has been killed already. This is now James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is the leader of the Jerusalem church. He says, brothers, listen to me. Now he changes the name Remember, up in verse, uh, what is it, six or seven, Peter. Now he calls him by his Jewish name, Simeon. Simeon and Paul, are the, or Peter, are the same guy. And so now he is even saying, Peter really is the Jewish guy here. He has related how God first visited the Gentiles. But notice what now James does. He lifts up Peter and he gives him dignity. And when we have these conflicts in leadership in our churches or anywhere, we have to find ways to protect the dignity and to protect each person. And this is what these two wise men, Barnabas and James, are doing. They're giving each of these leaders a place to stand and a place to be honored and a place to be respected. We will never go wrong by honoring people. And we far too dishonor one another. We need to say honorable things. Simeon has related how God first visited Gentiles and to take from them a people for his name. And now notice what James does. He goes back to the scriptures. 
that next section is all from the Old Testament. And when we have these issues of leadership, we need to go back to biblical principles and find out what does the Bible say about these leaders and what can we do to be honoring to leaders. There should never be a public display of dishonoring one another. We should never attack each other in board meetings, elders meetings. We should never have that kind. That should always be done behind the doors. Remember Matthew 18, go to the person individually. If they don't listen, then take a second person. Only after those two steps can we bring it to the public. And if we were to use these biblical principles, how much better would our leadership be and our witness to the, to the community? And, and politicians need to hear it? Yes, absolutely. All right, now I'm going to fast forward because we've run out of time. That this is where now we see that, um, starting in verse 22, we see that they come to this resolution about what they should do, that they're going to welcome these Gentile brothers in. They don't have to be circumcised. And it reverts back now to Paul and Barnabas, and they send two other guys along with them, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas in verse 22. This is where Silas enters into it. And they go back, they read this letter, and everybody up in Antioch is happy because they get this great thing. And in essence, you'll see in your notes that they, they wanted three things to keep healthy, keep healthy physically, spiritually, and relationally. And then when they were, um, they sent off Silas and Judas back to Jerusalem after they had come up and done their thing. And it says in verse 35 that Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. Now, verse 36. And after some days, in other words, they had remained there a long time, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every one of the cities where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there rose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas taking Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed committed by the brothers. Now, let's go back to chapter 1 and 2 of Galatians. And you're going to see on chapter 2, verse 11, it says that when Cephas, now this is yet another name for, Paul, uh, for Peter, came to Antioch, this is Paul writing, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Because, basically, the, he was eating and drinking with the Gentiles. But when these Jewish people came up, he withdrew, separated himself, fearing that circumcision party that came up. Meaning the group of people, not that they had a party to circumcise. And that the people that came up, and, and now he's, and he says in verse 13, he acted hypocritically. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, I think you're beginning to see how it's frayed between 
Barnabas, and Peter. And so what we have in the 15th chapter, end of chapter 15, that Barnabas separates, there was something that had been working up in Paul. And now we have from Galatians what that was. That he was seeing Barnabas as being a little wishy-washy here. Now that may have been the case, but it may also have been the case that Barnabas, in his son of encouragement side, had built all these relationships with the Gentiles and was kind of seen by those Jerusalem Jews as being outside of the fold. And he didn't have the relationships with them. He was counting on the relationship that he had built over many, many years with these Gentiles in Antioch and said, I'm going to go over to those tables because there's people that I haven't seen for a while and I'm going to try to bridge this gap. That's what I really think was happening with Barnabas. But Paul saw it as a defection. And they probably did not resolve this and they did not resolve it to their own detriment so that they ended up going out and separating. If we don't have the frank conversations that we need in leadership, we're going to have these divisions grow up amongst us. We've got to sit and have the relationships. Now, Paul wanted task. Barnabas wanted relationships. They were both right. And if they had understood the theology of competition, that they both had a competitive idea they would have stayed together and they would have been better off together. But because, no, I'm right, no, I'm right, they separated. Was God defeated? No. Because now we had two missionary teams rather than one. And John Mark goes to Cyprus with Barnabas and Paul goes on with Silas. Well, we've extended our time. Yep. Models, well, uh, another half brother has another letter by the name of Jude. Jude. So the, the letter in the New Testament, two of them are written by Jesus' half brothers. So there were others. Yeah. It's a good question. Thank you for your uh, being with us here and uh, the privilege that you've afforded.